the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Actually, it's the bathroom vacation program. I've got to clear my throat. Hey, I may make a lot of mistakes today. I've got to get back in the swing of things. But thank you for your patience while I was gone. I want to thank Pastor Ken for standing in for me and just generally let you know we had a great vacation. I appreciate so many of you who've emailed this and let us know that you were praying. The Lord spoke really powerfully to our hearts and uh, I think other than that, the best thing about the vacation uh, was hanging out with Paula, but, but together we just got a lot of rest, and I want to thank you very, very much for your prayers. Um, we're back in full swing now, now that we're back, so today with the program, we'd love your live phone calls and questions. All you have to do is call us at 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us at calvarysa.com. And a lot of you have. We've got lots and lots of questions that were sent in. Remember, we prefer the phone calls, but uh, it's always nice to have the questions uh, sort of in the bank. Uh, Or you can send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and then you'll be connected directly to our studio producer and um, use your hands-free feature, and you'll be safe. So 340-9585. I told you we're back in swing. It means our Sweet Summer Devotion Series resumes tonight, ladies. Christiana Hinnare will be uh, sharing her heart tonight. Um, you will be blessed. Pastor Ken will be back with his studies uh, for the men uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah. Um, for your high schoolers and your junior hires, they also have their own Bible studies, so you can make this sort of a family affair Monday night. And for the little, little ones, child care, of course, is provided. So we'd love to see you here as well i got so much on my heart. I don't know how much to say about the vacation other than the Lord spoke really, really powerfully to my heart. I did a message yesterday. I actually have one uh, uh, email question that came about that that I'll deal with first today. Uh, But um, I usually come back uh, from vacation and just share what the Lord's put on my heart but with our church body, and that's what we did yesterday in our three services. So, um, again, thank you for your prayers, and so let's get busy with the program now. Here is uh, my first question. It is This is the one that came in about yesterday uh, from my, our friend A.A. I haven't heard from you in a while, A.A. Thanks for, for calling in. He says, Pastor Ron, I tuned into your sermon yesterday. Uh, typically, you teach New Testament on Sundays. Are you changing up things? Um, uh, AA, no, I'm not changing up things. I'll be back in Luke chapter 15 uh, next Sunday uh, here at the church. 
Appreciate you tuning in online. We have a lot of people that listen online all over the country, actually. Uh, but yesterday was that message that when we return from vacation, I, I kind of just share my heart, what God has put in my heart. And usually it's vision from the Lord, direction for the church. Uh, in this case, it was more of an exhortation. Um, God has something. He, he started speaking to me right away. Um, God has something very special for this church. He, he's, he, I, I don't want this to sound arrogant to anybody. Please understand my heart. But, but God spoke clearly from Nehemiah chapter 1. Paula read Nehemiah chapter 1 to me 20 times or more uh, this week. We also got to read a whole bunch of the, the other books in the Bible um, together this, uh, this vacation. Uh, but from Nehemiah 1, the Lord made it really clear this is the message he wants for the church. And the message was that there's going to be a fresh move of God's Spirit. And he sort of asked us, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, if we'll be a part of it. And, and my response is, Lord, I don't want to miss anything. It re- requires introspection. It requires uh, repentance. Uh, I had to examine my heart. And, and there were some things that I needed to repent from in terms of, of my relationship with Lord. It's one of the things that that um, we've got to stop looking at the things that God has already done. Uh, he convicted me mightily of that, AA, um, and, and uh, basically said, look forward, don't look back. The, the things that you've done are good things. The, the work the church is doing is important work. But the work yet to come is to be our focus. So those are the kinds of things that uh, I shared yesterday. So... Uh, no worries, AA. I will be back in the the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, which is a great chapter, by the way. It's a, a chapter about lost things, lost sheep, uh, a lost coin, and then, of course, a lost son. Uh, I'm going to do the sheep and the coin uh, this coming Sunday, Communion Sunday, and then the following Sunday I will do the um, Bible study on the... Um, prodigal son, the following week I'll do the study on his brother who is really the lost son. So here's A.A.'s question. He says, my question comes from Psalm 82, verse 1. The verse is that God presides over a heavenly council of gods, little g. Uh, are these angels? If not, did the God of Israel create other supernatural beings that are godly in character? And then in parentheses, he says, versus the devil and his minions that he consults from time to time. I found another reference in Psalm 89. Could you please explain? Hey, there's a lot of, of, of explanations here that, that are floated around, but, but I think it's really, really very straightforward. Uh, these are not supernatural beings at all that are in view. These are certainly not angels. Uh, this is um, God making a very important point in this psalm. Now, um, when God summons these judges, um, the, the writer is Asaph, the leader of worship. He's picturing God in the midst of the mighty, standing in authority. Now, the little g gods doesn't mean they're supernatural beings. Um, God is standing in their midst, and God is the authority over all of the authority. Uh, and what he's standing in their midst is to bring judgment among them. So the idea here is that these are rulers, human rulers in the world, and God is simply taking his place in judgment over them. The word for God's little g, and you'll find it in the Psalms as well, is Elohim. It's a word that we're familiar with. It's plural for the generic word for God in Hebrew. And the idea of God judging gods has led to a whole lot of confusion. That's why we really have to understand the context. Elohim, this word is often used to describe the true God, Yahweh. It's in the plural form. Uh, It describes not only his majesty, his awesome greatness, but it also is a reference to the triune nature of God, being one God in three persons. The word Elohim is plural. It means more than, this is interesting, more than one, but not more than three. So Elohim is used in the Bible that way. Uh, Elohim is also used as the plural of pagan gods in the Old Testament, the false gods of the nations that were in opposition to God. Um, Elohim is 
sometimes used in reference to angelic beings, but here it is a reference to human judges who, in their opposition to God, are actually standing in the place of God to determine the fate of other people. So it's really, really important that we understand that. So there's nothing supernatural about this at all. Hope that helps. Hey, thank you very, very much. Uh, if you want to email me directly with the return address, I'll answer the last question that you asked in your PS, but I don't want to do that on the air. Thanks very, very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from our mobile app from Kin. He says, who is James in Acts chapter 12? In verse 2 of 12, James is the brother of John, and he's put to death. So is James in verse 17, the half-brother of Jesus. He says, also the followers of James mentioned throughout the New Testament are the followers of the Apostle James or the brother James. Uh, Ken, you're right. In verse 2, it's a reference to James, who is the first of the apostles that are martyred for their faith. Um, but in later in that verse... Uh, it's a reference to James, the half-brother of the Lord, who is at that point seemingly in charge of the church. You know, Peter say, or People say that Peter is the rock of the church, and he was the one in charge. Not so in Jerusalem, uh, in the mother church. Uh, James, um, James the Just was one of his nicknames. He had a nickname Camel Knees because he was such a man of, of devout prayer. Uh, but, but James is the one who is uh, the reference to the half-brother of the Lord, who obviously, when Jesus appeared to him, was born again. Uh, And um, I I just love the way that that God used him, this denier of Jesus, thinking Jesus was crazy. But boy, did he respond when the Lord, the risen, resurrected Lord, appeared to him. So when you see the followers of James, especially um, when the gifts are being brought back to the New Testament church in Jerusalem, um, the followers of James are those uh, who are Jewish converts to Christianity who were disciples of James at the same time being disciples of Jesus. They would be the ones who are sort of the most legalistic of the others, uh, or more legalistic than the others. So thank you very much. Here's a question from our mobile app from Kirby. Um, who are the elders in Acts chapter 11, verse 30? Are they pastors of churches in Judea or the apostles themselves in Jerusalem? These are the pastors of churches. You know, when we look at the the New Testament in those passages where churches are being established in the qualifications uh, for leadership, uh, there are words that are used interchangeably depending on the translation. Elders is one of them. Uh, Overseers, the men in charge is another um, one translation uh, identifies them as bishops, but they're always referring to the men that were selected as pastors. Now, one of the reasons it's important to understand that is because they're mentioned in the plural, and there are people who mistakenly say, well, see, uh, the elders of the church are supposed to rule the church, not the pastor. Well, no, the, 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 the words are in plural because there were many churches. Remember, in the first century church, the house churches were small and they gathered in areas in regions and they would spread out as the church grew. And of course we know that the church uh, grew very quickly in the first century. So they would have to have different churches spring up in different houses all over. So when he says appoint elders um, for the church, he's not talking about in a single church. He's talking about appointing another pastor to go out when the church uh, is being started. It's one of the reasons that, that church planting ministries uh, are approved by by the Word of God, because we do the same thing. We've planted just our little church alone. Uh, we've planted 29 churches out of this church in our 24 um, years here. And uh, we've got two more churches that are going out uh, this year. Uh, one is going to go to the far northwest side, the Alamo Ranch area of San Antonio, and then another one, uh, our third church uh, that we'll be planning in Mexico. Uh, both of those pastors are going to be going out and starting those churches very, very soon. So um, that's the reference in Acts chapter 11. Uh, that's what you'll see in the epistles, especially the pastoral epistles. 
uh, it's always referring to uh, men who are called to be pastors or overseers of the church. Great question. I appreciate it very, very much. Scott asks a question from our email inbox. Uh, did the return to Jerusalem by the 50,000 after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, um, did the return signal what will be a remnant of Jews and by extension Christians who will be saved in the last days? Scott, no, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, it's not intentional. Uh, it's just the, the, the theme of a remnant uh, runs consistently through the Bible. There's always going to be a remnant uh, in the book of Revelation during the Great Tribulation. There's going to be a remnant. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about the Jews who are going to be converted at the return of Jesus. And, and again, it's a remnant by definition. A remnant is small. Only one-third of the Jews uh, who are alive and see Jesus' return are going to become believers. The others are going to perish. So by definition, a remnant is a small group of people. Now, 50,000, I, I mentioned this in my Bible study yesterday, uh, when we're talking about Nehemiah 1, and again, it was more of an exhortation than a Bible study. Uh, but uh, when the Jews um, were taken into captivity, there were millions and millions of Jews. Uh, there were three different dispersions of Jews uh, taken into captivity over uh, a number of years, and millions and millions. They started with the best and the brightest, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but... The um, um, they start with the best and the brightest, uh, but but later they're taking more and more people. So millions would go, and at the end of the seventy-year captivity, there were only fifty thousand men, women, and children whose heart was to go back home. You see, the world in Babylon had sort of won their hearts. They'd grown comfortable in Babylon. Uh, Nehemiah uh, stayed in Babylon. He wasn't born. Uh, in in Jerusalem, he was born in captivity, but his heart was always for God. That's one of the things that that separated him from from so many others. Uh, but there were only fifty thousand. How oh, that had to break the Lord's heart. Fifty thousand. God must have cried out, "Where are all my people?" Uh, I think that's a picture of Jesus coming to His own and being rejected by His own. Um, but but it's not an intentional picture. It's just what's always happened in the scriptures for those of us who become Christians and I say those of us incorrectly because we're going to be gone at the rapture of the church but those who are non-Jews Gentiles who become believers during the great tribulation and the greatest revival in the history of the world will occur during the great tribulation they're going to lose their lives for for their faith in Christ Uh, they're going to lose their heads they're going to be martyred for their faith um, and and even though there is going to be this great and glorious revival, coupled with the Jews who are going to get saved under the ministry of the two witnesses at the Wailing Wall, and then the, the, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls running around who can't be killed. Well, you can understand what a great revival is going to occur, but even that number is going to be dwarfed by the number of people that are going to enter into eternal torment because they simply will not let Jesus rule over them. So it's it's not a sign, but it is a consistent theology um, that goes all the way through, Scott, the, the, the passage, or through our Bible. Here is a question from our email inbox from Kate. By the way, let me give the phone number again. I'd love to have phone calls, 340-9585, or toll-free, 877-630-5757. Here is a question, hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, Kay. Um, she says, I have a 1984 NIV Thompson Chain Reference Bible that I got in high school. I love this version. It's my, and the my is capitalized, it's my Bible. Uh, Kay, it is one of the great Bibles in history. Uh, I had a 1984 Thompson Chain Reference, and I don't have it anymore. I can't find it. I, don't, I have no idea what happened to it. But uh, b- before computer programs and and, um, um, I mean, the, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible 
was like the best Bible ever. So you have a good Bible. Congratulations. Take care of it because you won't find a replacement for it uh, with the 1984 uh, version of of the NIV. Uh, Here's what she says. Uh, But over the years, I've had well-meaning friends try to say I should only trust the King James Version, referring to verses that words changed or omitted. For instance, in my Bible, how Matthew 6, 9 through 13, for the last part of Jesus' model for prayer, and then, for instance, she, she includes this, for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever, uh, is just a footnote. And Luke nine fifty six is a footnote to tell us another part of Jesus' words to James and John. I know there are more examples of this kind of thing. Will you please help me understand why? And if we as believers need to be concerned about versions other than the King James, is the King James the only reliable version? Okay, I want you to listen closely. I just said earlier that you have a great Bible. The Thompson Chain Reference, and it's available in King James as well. It's, it's, it's a wonderful study. If you really want, and this is for all of you listeners, if you really, really, really want to learn uh, your Bible, you find a Thompson Chain Reference and start studying it, and you're going to become so familiar with the Bible. It's, it's just a great Bible. But it is not the King James, the only good Bible. Uh, when you say well-meaning friends, I'm not sure they're well-meaning because they're certainly not well-studied. They go to churches that promote a King James-only attitude, and, and it's really, really bad scholarship. There's nothing in the NIV that has been deleted from the King James. It's not like they're trying to take the deity away from the Lord. Here's the difference, Kay, between the two versions. And this is true of most of the um, more modern translations as opposed to the uh, King James or New King James. All they're doing is translating different sets of manuscripts, and both are faithful translation of their manuscripts. The King James is a translation of the Texas Receptus or the majority text, uh, and and the King James does a great job, if not awkward, because of the, 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 the use of English has changed so much. Um, but they do a great job of translating the majority text. On the other hand, the NIV and the other new translations are translating the Alexandrian manuscripts, and they're, they're, they're translating what's there. And in every case, the people that say they're taking away from the Bible don't get it because they put it in the bottom. Some versions say, and they'll put exactly what's in there. So they're not trying to hide anything. So the, the NIV is not... Uh, a version that you have to be concerned about, that the 2011 certainly is, but the 1984 NIV is a treasure, and hold on to it. You will love uh, that Bible for a very, very long time. I appreciate it very much. Let's go to Cibolo and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron, I've, we've been studying uh, the books of Paul, and we're talking about grace and uh and that kind of thing. And now we get ready to start the book of James, and I've been reading about that. And it says in James, in the second chapter, I believe, that uh, faith without works is dead. Then I revert back to who James is speaking to, and it says James is speaking to the 12 tribes. It's really confusing to me. Could you give me a little explanation, please? I can, Ron. Thank you very much. And you don't need to be confused. There's no contradictions at all. What James is talking about, now imagine what it was like in the first century when people would be converted, and James is, is the, the most Jewish of all of the, the, the early church leaders. Imagine he would see people making conversions, confessions, but he wouldn't see their life change. So what he's saying is not faith without works is dead. In other words, in order to be saved, you have to have faith and good works. That's how we misunderstand this epistle, and by the way, James was one of the last two books that were accepted in the canon of Scripture because of this very debate. What James is saying, and I say it all the time to our church here at Calvary Chapel, uh, what James is saying is, look, that if you're really saved, if you have real saving faith, then good works are going to follow. Good works don't contribute to your salvation, but those good works follow your conversion. So what he's saying, Ron, is this. He says later, you show me your, your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith, or that I really believe, by the things that I do. 
And what I say to our church here all the time, look, is if you've met my Jesus, then your life has to change. If you're here today and you've made this statement of faith that you believe in Jesus Christ, maybe you've been baptized or maybe you've walked an altar call and, and you say you believe, but if your life is a mess, if your life hasn't changed since you claim to have met Jesus, you haven't met him at all. And that's the point that James is making. So understand as you study the book of James, and you're going to be blessed. As you study the book of James, uh, it's not a causative thing. Okay, I'm going to get saved because I have faith and because I have good work. The Catholic Church, as you know, Ron, has really messed that up. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's the, 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 the definitive statement on how we're saved. Um, all we have to do is understand that we will be Romans 12, 1 and 2. We'll be transformed once we meet Jesus. So there's no contradiction. This isn't a, a work salvation message at all. It's simply saying, James is saying, I'll show you I really believe. Just watch my life. And I challenge people that way all the time. You can watch my life. I'm different than 28 years ago. I'm different than two weeks ago. So, Ron, that's the answer. Thank you for calling and don't worry. Enjoy, James. We've got 30 minutes left in our return from vacation show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program i i apologize i've just been made aware that i've been talking really really fast maybe that's just me arrested me but i'll try to slow down uh, and speak a little bit more clearly. But again, give me a day or two to get back in the swing of the program. Here is a, sh- a question from our mobile app from Nacho. Uh, what does Nicodemus mean by we in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? Were there others in the Pharisees who also believed that Jesus was sent from God? Um the, the we is a general reference, Nacho, to the religious leaders, not only the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. So it's just a collective term. It doesn't mean that everybody believed that Jesus was sent by God. It's just Nicodemus coming to him at the first opportunity that he had and saying, look, we know you're men sent by God. We know there's something up here. It's general knowledge. Um, so it, it's just a very general reference to Jesus. I think it's really important. Uh, anytime we get a question from John chapter 3, we need to really, really slow down and take a look at this question. Um, Jesus is going to hold him completely accountable. He's going to say, "If you, in fact, you know that I'm sent from God, then you need to obey me. Now, we also know regarding Nicodemus that he was a secret disciple. He believed in Jesus. Now, he was so secret that he didn't stand up for Jesus until after Jesus' death. I love the fact that Two of them, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of them very wealthy, very influential. Nicodemus, uh, identified by Jesus as Israel's teacher in John chapter 3. Uh, I love the fact that, that at least watching how Jesus died sort of brought them out of the closet. And they then took a public stand as believers. They did it um, with the risk of losing everything. And yet they didn't care. Having watched him die the way they did, they didn't care who knew. And the collective we that Nicodemus uses means that, frankly, they're all accountable. Jesus talked about the miracles that he did when he was accused of doing miracles by the power of the devil. Every one of those religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, every one of them was accountable. In fact, that's why Jesus pronounced the woes on them. Why he, he called them vipers, snakes, and, and whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're just decaying, rotting flesh. Very, very important. Thank you, Nacho, for the question. I appreciate it. 340-9585 or toll-free 
630-KSLR. Here is a question from Annette. Uh, she said, why was Paul told not to tell what he saw in heaven, but John in Revelation was able to tell what he saw in heaven? Well, Annette, the, the answer to that question is because John was told to tell what he saw. Write these things down. John was writing prophecy. Uh, Paul's trip to heaven um, was was simply a, a result of his suffering. Um, the, the things that he was going through, no doubt, the the, the fears and doubts that he experienced, uh, you know, just the circumstance of things. He was suffering so much. Why is this happening? And on one occasion in Corinth, God took him to heaven. He took him to heaven and showed him, but, but he was told not to tell anybody what he'd seen. And that second part of this question is, what does that say then for all of the books that have come out and the movies that have come out about people who supposedly have been to heaven and told everybody what they saw? Well, Annette, what it should tell us is that all of those books are not true. They're all phony. Um, they've made a lot of money with those kinds of books, but they're simply not true. I know a guy who says he's been to heaven. I was sharing Jesus with him because he's living a life, I mean, that would demonstrate that he's on his way to, to an eternity in hell. And uh, I was sharing Jesus with him, and he said, he said, oh, I'm going to heaven. I, I was in a motorcycle accident, and I saw the light, and I was embraced by the love, so I know where I'm going, so I don't have to change anything. Those are all lies. And the people that have gone to heaven, personal visitations that they're describing, like Paul, if it was true, would have been said, would have been told that it's not permitted for men to tell these things. John, speaking prophetically, was instructed by Jesus to write these things down and share them as a part, of course, of our Bible. So I hope that answers your question, Ed. Thank you very much. Let's go to Federico from San Antonio Online 1. Federico, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Gloria Dios bienaventurado. Esther Ron, I got a question about the cave of Adullam. In what territory was it in in today's geography? Well, Federico, I'm going to look that up. I, I I don't have that information on top of my head. I know the cave of Adullam or Adullam in this story, but uh, if you just kind of hang on for a couple of minutes, um, my research guy right here is my producer is going into the, the Bible Maps program, and we'll be able to tell exactly where that was in just a couple of moments. Thank you, and glory to God from me to you as well. Thank you, Federico, very, very much. We'll have that answer for him in just a couple of moments. Here is a question from Patty from our mobile app. What are your thoughts on tithing? Should a Christian tithe? Um, Patty, we should give. We, we should give out of the abundance of our heart. We should give generously. Um, God blesses a generous man or woman. Um, and, and when we learn that, it changes our lives. But tithing, now remember, tithing is a part of a covenant that Jesus did away with. And I know there's a lot of churches that teach tithing and, and, and make you feel really guilty if you're not tithing. The word tithe means a tenth. Um, but, the, but the idea here is we're not under the same law that Jews were under when they were required to tithe, to give a tenth to the temple ministry. It's simply not true. We give because God has given everything for us. We don't give because we have to. So yes, we should be generous. And yes, we should support the work of God. And the first place that we should give is to the church where we, we get fed, the church that we're part of the body of. Um, but but it's not a tithe. I, I, I break smart. Now, let me say this carefully. I, I don't know who gives what for the most part. The only time I see money is I'm the only one that checks the mail here. And, and um, uh, you know, if checks come in the mail. I see that. But I'm always just looking for amounts. I'm not looking for uh, names. I don't want to know who gives what, so that information is is reserved for uh, my office manager who who makes the deposits and deposits them in the bank. 
Um, but, but it always sort of breaks my heart when I see the same amounts of money coming in or I see an, an amount with an odd number of dollars and cents and I realize that it's probably 10% of what somebody gave. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving 10% if that's what the Lord led you to give. But my concern, Patty, is that people don't really understand the privilege that we have to give as New Testament Christians. We should give hilariously, the Greek word in Second Corinthians is. And we should, we should give hilariously because we have the honor and the privilege of giving to God's work. After God emptying the vault of heaven for us, why wouldn't we give? Now think about it this way as well, Patty. 10%. If a law that condemned you required you to give 10%, how much more should we give for a new covenant that saves us? We should be more grateful for grace than any Jew ever was for the law. And so we give, and we give abundantly. We can't outgive God. That's not a give-to-get scheme. And unfortunately, there are too many pastors who try to portray it that way. You give to me, and God will give to you tenfold, thirtyfold, a hundredfold. That, that, that's to misrepresent the heart of God. But all we need to do is give. Because God gave everything for us. And there's something about being able to give to the work of the Lord. It is so liberating, so joyful. Paul says that our responsibility is to give everything. Romans 12, 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Not just talking about our physical bodies, but everything that we are, our entire being. It all belongs to God. So, Patty, when, when you get a check, it's not your money, it's God. Now, he's going to let you keep most of it. But we need to be willing to give it all. It was, you'll remember, even under law, the widow who gave just what we would consider two pennies, the widow's mite. And Jesus said of her, and he was noticing who gave what Jesus was. And he was saying that the others gave out of their wealth or their abundance. She gave everything that she had. She's the only one that understood what we all really owe God. She was the one who was noted. And make no mistake, Patty, God still makes note of those who give because we understand that everything that I have belongs to the Lord. I know people are afraid, well, well, well I got bills to pay. Well, well, we ought maybe not to have so many bills. That's one thing to consider. Let the Lord speak to your heart on that. But on the other hand, God knows what your bills are. And giving is an act of faith. And if we offer everything, if I get $100, it's all the Lord's, not $10. It's not like 90 for me, Lord, 10 for you. I can always see Jesus wiping his forehead. Phew, I don't know how he's going to make it without that 10 bucks. But that's really, Patty, the attitude that we have about giving to God. And, and what we need to understand is that whatever we get, it all belongs to him. And if we would sit down prayerfully with our Bibles open, say, okay, Lord, Today you've got X amount of dollars. Got paid today, you've got X amount of dollars. What do you want me to do with your money? Then the parables about a faithful steward would apply to you. And if you read those parables, Patty, you will be abundantly blessed. Thank you very, very much. The Cave of Adullam. Thank you, Federico, for being patient. Where the future King David sought refuge from Saul... It was at the town of Beth Shemeth, approximately 15 to 20 miles west of Jerusalem, between Bethlehem and Hebron. So, uh, Federico, that's one of the great things about Bible programs and maps. Um, um, I love maps. I like to look at them. Um, but I um, hope that helped. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Chip. Ooh, this is a good question. I've had it for a long time. I've had it in the past, but he says, in reading Acts 13, 2, you think that either Paul or Barnabas were acting in their flesh when they split up in Acts chapter 15 in verses 36 through 40. Um, Chip, whenever there's anger and whenever there's hostility, you remember the situation. John Mark, who was a cousin of Barnabas, 
a young man who wanted to go on the first missionary journey, and he bailed on them. And when he bailed on them, he left them in, in a difficult position. So now they come back and they report all the great things that happened, and there's John Mark. Now, John Mark, by the way, is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that's Peter's account of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, when he heard all the great things that happened, heard the conversions, heard the stories about the miracles, uh, no doubt feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, he wanted to go again. And Paul said, no, you can't go. And Barnabas said, come on, let's give him another chance. And it says that the, the, the division between them, the, the, the argument was so severe that they had to separate, they had to part ways. Well, um, all I know is that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Both Paul and Barnabas loved God with all their heart. So one could have been right, one could have been wrong. But I think, Chip, personally, and I, I, I believe this very strong after seeing and working with different people over the years uh, for our 24-plus years here at Calvary Chapel, I think it was just a matter of perspective. Uh, Paul was a guy who was mission-oriented. God said to do it. I got to do it. Can't fail. Can't take any risks. We can't jeopardize the mission. And he viewed Barnabas, uh, or, or John Mark, rather, as, as uh, a potential opening for the devil. If he's weak, if he bails again, um, um, the enemy is going to have an opportunity to destroy us. So we got to protect the mission. we got to protect the mission. I also believe that Paul was probably concerned about John Mark in another sense as well. That John Mark, if he failed again, then he would be crushed and the enemy would be able to devour him. Barnabas, on the other hand, was more people-oriented. Paul was mission-focused. Barnabas was people-focused. And Barnabas would look at his cousin and he would think, well, this is, or I think he's a nephew, not a cousin, but he, he would look at, at, uh, at Barnabas and say, no, this is a young man in Christ. Now we've got to trust him. He's going to be okay this time. And I, I think it was just a matter chip of perspective. I don't think either one was right or either one was wrong. Here's what I know. But Silas has been warming up in the bullpen. He's going to go with Paul. And I know that Barnabas, who Paul would completely reconcile with at a future date, still has an effective ministry for the Lord. So the work of God wasn't set back at all. Did they get fleshy in their arguing? Perhaps and probably. They're humans just like you and just like me. But I don't think either one was necessary fleshy. Uh, can you please repeat the name of the city, Federico? Federico is Beth, B-E-T-H, Shemeth, S-H-E-M-E-T-H. Today it's known as Bet, B-E-T-S-H-E-M-E-T-H. So Bet Shemeth. Uh, it's 15 to 20 miles west of Jerusalem between Bethlehem and Hebron. It's in the wilderness area where you know, David was hiding in the caves uh, as he was running from Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. Uh, so this was a uh, an area of the country that David got really, really familiar with. And so it was in that cave. Thank you, Federico. Thank you for calling back. 340-9585. Here is a question from our mobile app from Emily. She says, Pastor Ron, should we worship on Saturday or on Sunday? Uh, Emily, we as New Testament Christians, the book of Colossians and Galatians, uh, both indicate we should worship God every day. You know, if you're talking about corporate worship, it doesn't really matter, but motive really does matter. Now, if you're worshiping on Saturday, because that was the original Sabbath, and Jews under the law were required to keep Sabbath, it demonstrates that you really don't understand that we have been set free from the old covenant of law. We're not under law. And the early church... In your Bibles, we're told, met in the first day of the week. And they did it to honor the day of resurrection. So it's like the focus. And I love that, that change, Emily, because on, on the first day of the week, the, the, the first century Christians, they understood that was the day, the event that gave them life. Eight is the number of, of new things. 
And there was a brand new thing. The old is gone. The new has come, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And so the first century church, in honor of the resurrection, the day that validated their faith in Jesus Christ, that's when the church began meeting on Sundays rather than Saturdays. A couple of things about Saturday worship. It's perfectly okay if you're worshiping Jesus on Saturday because that's where your heart is and that's where you're comfortable. But if you're worshiping on Saturday out of obligation, if you're worshiping at a, a an SDA church, Seventh-day Adventist church, or or uh, um, uh, you, you belong to a, a group that's Sabbatarian, um, then then you don't really understand why we worship at all. Now, if you worship on Saturday, that's great. You know, there's a lot of people that work on Sundays. That's why we have church on Wednesday. We have church on Fridays. We have church on Sundays. Many churches have Saturday services. That's not Sabbatarian. It's just let's be there when the people are available to worship. And so if you worship Whatever day, doesn't matter. But we need to remember, Emily, that all days belong to him. It's like I said to an earlier question, all of our money is his. All of our talent is his. It's to be used for his glory. Well, so too on our worship. We need to remember that Jesus is the object of our worship. And because we're not under the law, there's no requirement to worship out of a legalistic ritual. To worship what day you want to worship, just make sure your heart is right whenever you do. Now, let me give you an example, Emily, and then I'll go on to another question because I don't want to overdo this. But there are a lot of people who worship on Sundays legalistically. They come to church because, well, that's what Christians do on Sundays. Go to worship and people stand up because, well, everybody else is standing up. So you can worship on Saturday or Sunday or any other day and you can do it with the wrong heart, the wrong motives. You can do it legalistically. And there's no value, there's no benefit. So it's really important. Let me tell you a very quick story, Emily, and then I'll move on. We, a long time ago, Paul and I were in uh, Southern California for a pastor's conference. And we we're staying at a hotel in Orange County. And it just happened to be on one of the Jewish feast days, feast weekends, and there was a very large group of of uh, Orthodox Jews who were in the hotel that we were in. And I came out of my hotel room to go to the first uh, day of our conference, and it was on the second or third floor, and I'm standing in front of the, the uh, elevator, and there was a group probably of 12 to 15 Jews there for the festival. And they were all just standing there in front of the elevator. And so when I came, they looked at me like I was like their hero. Uh, We can't push the button because it's the Sabbath. So would you push the button for us? And so I pushed the button. And of course, because I was there, the door opened first. I got all the way in the back and I realized what was going on. And so at the end, uh, when we got back to the the bottom floor, um, they wouldn't push the button to get out. And I'm in the very back of of the elevator. All these people between me and the buttons. And so I thought, watch this, I'm going to mess with them a little bit. And, and I just said, w- w- would you push the button? Well, w- we can't push the button. I said, well, I can't get to the button. And we just kind of had a laugh together, so it wasn't a, a conflict or anything. But, but, but the idea is, okay, I'll, I'll work my way up and push the button. Um, that kind of legalistic nonsense has no value at all. So just worship with your whole heart and do it seven days a week. 340-9585 if you have any questions for me. Got about five minutes left. Here's a, about three minutes left. Oh, really? Gone fast. Um, here is a question I can take um, from Brian. Is Psalm 80... Verses 17 and 80, Messianic. Let me read uh, those verses. Psalm 80. I've got to get there. Psalm 80. It says, Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. 
then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. I included verse 19 there, um, just because I like it. So I hope that's okay with you, Brian. Uh, it is not Messianic. It's not a, a psalm that is universally accepted uh, as Messianic, but it is, and many of the psalms are, are prophetic. It's not a Messianic psalm in general, but it is prophetic of the Son of Man at the right hand of God. There's, there's no one who's ever sat at the right hand of God except Jesus. Jesus is a man. The Son of Man was his favorite title for himself, and the Gospel of Luke uses it quite often. Uh, and so it's not messianic, uh, accepted that way by Jews, uh, as Psalm 22 would be, or um, uh, any of the other suffering servant psalms, or or uh, the, the, the psalms that, that talk about the return of the king. Uh, but it is prophetic, and certainly points to Jesus. So while we can say it's about the Messiah, it's not a Messianic psalm. Good question, Brian. Thanks for studying your Bible. I appreciate it very, very much. That too is a psalm of Asaph. And uh, in this particular psalm, we're unsure of the date of this psalm. Uh, there are some who insist it was written by David's Asaph. Um, I think most scholars, however, uh, fall on the side. It would be a, a generation or two from that Asaph. It doesn't matter because it's about Jesus. Hey, thanks for putting up with my talking fast and thanks for putting up with my mistakes. It's been great to be back. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.